This is an ABC podcast. Today, my guest is Peruz Jafari. Peruz was brought up in Tehran, the Iranian capital, and he was a boy during that revolutionary moment in 1979 when the Shah of Iran was overthrown and the new Islamist regime took over. Peruz says that moment was like sitting in your living room and suddenly all the lights go out, leaving everyone in darkness and frightened of what might happen next. Peruz grew up in a family that enjoyed celebrating some seriously ancient Persian traditions, traditions that predate the arrival of Islam by thousands of years. He wanted to follow a creative career, but the regime and its enforcers eventually made life intolerable for him, and Peruz felt he had to leave. He migrated to Australia and completed a law degree. Now Peruz Jafari has written a novel. It's called Forty Nights, whose main character is, like Peruz, an Iranian migrant and refugee advocate who's helping out a neighbour to bring her two nieces out of Somalia to safety in Australia. I spoke with Peruz Jafari in front of an audience at the State Library of Victoria as part of the 2022 Melbourne Writers' Festival. And we began by talking about chicken. There's a wonderful description early on in your novel, Peruz, of a chicken dish your mother used to make with walnuts and pomegranate molasses. Fezanjan, is that how you say it? Yes, that's What correct. is this dish and what's involved in making this dish, please? So fesenjan is a very, very traditional Persian dish, and it's quite a process to make it. So basically the main ingredients are um, crushed walnuts, uh, pomegranate, molasses, onions, and then you just let it sit, uh, bubble, 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 for many, many hours on, on the stove, and then they add chicken to it. And what memories does it evoke for you? It evokes memories of winter. Um, so growing up in Iran, we had really, really cold winters in Tehran. Uh, I remember coming from school, you know, we would have received meters of snow in the backyard. So I would be playing with, you know, with snow and making snowmen. And mom would have been uh, preparing in the kitchen for hours. And uh, I can still smell the, the pomegranate molasses oozing out of the kitchen with smoked rice. Mom used to serve it with smoked rice, and so the, the blend of smoked rice and that pomegranate molasses, it just brings back all of those memories. There's a festival that's mentioned at the start of your book as well, Jahar Shanbeh. What is this festival? It's a festival of fire. Um, it's a very, very ancient Persian tradition. Uh, goes back thousands of years before Islam, before Zoroastrians. It's, it's, it's a pagan tradition. And... Uh, on the eve of the last Wednesday of the Persian year, which is late February in, in Georgian calendar, we wait until sunset and we make bonfire um, from twigs and thorny bushes. We lay them all out in the backyard if, if people have a backyard or out on the street. So bundles, kind of a metre apart, and we set them alight and, and we, we jump over these bundles of fire and then there's this um, phrase that, that we use as we are jumping over the fire. We say, may your warmth become mine and my ailments become yours. And then we, we just pro- repeat this process. We, we get to the end of the line and then we, we jump back again. So this goes on forever until fire goes out. And how does the fire go out? Do you extinguish it? Or? Oh, no, no. <laughs> in, in our household, mum was very, very particular about how we respected fire. Fire is very, very sacred in, in old Persian mythology. So she would, she would use the phrase, we do not kill the fire. So it was like killing, act of killing is, is a crime. Um, so we would wait until it would naturally go out. If my, my brother was very, very naughty, sometimes he would, you know, hold, you know, try to hose it down and it would make her very cross. Very cross. <laughs> These are traditions, as you say, that go back, what, nearly 10,000 years, in fact? They're traditions of vast antiquity that might even precede those of Judaism. They're that old. My understanding of old Zoroastrian traditions is that fire is meant to burn away falseness and impurity. 
So what does that leaping mean? What does that symbolise, the fire on that night? Yeah, you absorb the heat, you absorb the, the, the fire, fire energy and then you give your ailments and then your troubles to the fire. So there's an, there's an exchange that happens when you leap. There's also a tradition on that night of spoon banging. Can you explain what happens with the spoon banging, please? Yeah, so as, as um, you know, fires are burning, you know, around the traps, uh, people um, knock on doors and so you can hear them approaching. So they would have a spoon and a metal ball and they would be banging. And as the sound gets closer, you know that they're going to knock on your door and they ask for lollies or nuts or whatever, sweets. That... Well, like trick or treat. Mm. Yeah. But this is something that proceeds again, Halloween by... Thousands and thousands, thousands of years. Thousands of years, yes. So prior to that night, mum would, would prepare small bundles of uh, nuts, mixed, mixed nuts with, you know, dried fruit. So when, when people would, would knock on the door, she would give them bundles of treats. How much pressure have you been getting from your mum to persist with these festivals in Australia? A lot. <laughs> and one thing she, she couldn't comprehend was this whole you know, fire burning and stuff. And so there are regulations here, Mum. I can't just, <laughs> just go to the, you know, to, to the road and, and, and just set up fire. I get arrested. I get, you know, get a fine. And she would say, it doesn't matter, you know, and, you know just do a small bundle in, in, in your backyard. No one will know. So immense pressure, Richard. So do you do it anyway? Or do you, and do you risk having the neighbour go, hey, mate, you got a fire in your garden? <laughs> Do you do that anyway? Or do, or do I, now I do. Now that I live in the country, I, I get away with it much easier than I did when I was in the city. Yeah. Was your family Zoroastrian? You, not officially, but you would say by how my mum was very well versed in the religion and the history of it and the te- its teachings, you would say that I, I, I grew up in a Zoroastrian. Um, I guess so you're like culturally Zoroastrian? Culturally Zoroastrian. Definitely not Muslim. And Dad, he was just a bit of a silent figure in the household. So mum, mum was the dominant voice. Yeah. What did she tell you about the origins of these traditions? Oh, she always talked about how old they were. And she also used to draw linkages between those traditions and, and similar traditions in other parts of the world. She used to say how, you know, our ancient stories are quite united, in fact, despite the geographical distance. Zoroastrianism is still being practiced in India. Is it tolerated in Iran? Yes, it is. Yeah. Is there still fire temples? There are fire temples. In fact, there's this beautiful fire temple just outside the outskirts of Isfahan. And it's beautiful. The fire never goes out. It's still burning. So where were you in the family lineup of kids? So I was the youngest of, of three, but I also had a Another sister, not biological, who, who also grew up with us. And uh, my sister left Iran when I was five. So she left when I was very, very little. I have very little memory of her, you know, at that time. But obviously, you know, she came back for visits and, and whatnot. And my brother left when I was nine. So, yeah, I was, I was quite young when both of them left, left Iran for various reasons. Tishta, in your novel, calls his mother Maman like the French do. Was French spoken in the house, or was that a common phrase you used for your mother as well? Well, um, that's not how we say it, although it's a French word. We say maman. It's another variation of mam or mama. France had a huge presence in Iran post-Second World War, or between First World War and Second World War, so as a result, we adopted a lot of French words. Like for TV, we say television, we say radio, we say autobus. So, you know, a lot, we have a lot of French words in our everyday language, and Maman was, was, was one of those. Before the Iranian Revolution, was your family kind of well-to-do? Were they seen as, I don't know if elite is probably a strong word, but were they part of that strata of Iranian society that travelled a lot, was quite worldly, spoke several languages? Well, I have to explain two things. One is during the Shah's regime, which is, you know, between you know, late 50s and 1970s, Iran prospered. So a lot of people were well off. You know, housing was affordable. Everyone had a car, free education. Travelling overseas was, was a thing that everyone, everyone started doing. So it wasn't like my family was, was an exception. But of course, in saying that, uh, mum and dad were both educated. We had relatives 
in many other countries of the world. So, so yes, they, they traveled. Mom spoke English, she was self-taught. And grandma spoke French, which is remarkable for someone of, of that generation. I get a sense of the reverence you had for your grandmother. Oh, she was larger than life. She was tiny, but you would not mess with her. <laughs> you would not mess with her. She was the matriarch of the family. And then the extended family, everyone came to her for advice. She had authority. Uh, women who experienced family violence, they would come to her and, and she would summon the, the men and, and sort them out. And it would never happen, happen again. How would she sort these men out? She would just sit down and have a chat with them. So, all right, well, what's going on? You know, she would sit like this and you know, have a fag with them. And she was just out of this world. And, um, would she shame them or would she just find out? She would shame them. Yeah, yeah she would just shame them um, blatantly. And, and, and they would listen. You know, other people would interfere and these men would arc up even more. But they would listen to her. She was kind. She was generous. She only ever had two tops and two skirts and one pair of shoes. And no matter how much mom would buy for her, she would give them away. She would say, there's someone worse off. I don't need that many. So she was always in this drab cardigan in winter, which was kind of all threadbare. And it was, it was just like she looked like the homeless person. And mom, mom would say, mom... <laughs> Can we just go and do some shopping for you? And she would say, ah, what for? She never kept anything. She just constantly gave her money away, her food away, her clothes away. She was just remarkable. And how was she with you? Was she stern with you or very loving with you? I was her favourite. <laughs> she was well, a tyrant. You can tyrant. fear of contradiction here and now, can't you? <laughs> well, when my sister read my book, she goes, are we talking about the same grandma? <laughs> <laughs> what is that about? And uh, she was really, really tough with my siblings, with, with all her grandkids, even with her mum and, and her, her brothers, as in her sons. But I was the favourite. She really spoiled me rotten. And she would come to mum and say, this one is very special. <laughs> so... Was she physically, physically affectionate? Yeah, so? she was, yeah. And that, that is just a thing in my family. Everyone is physically quite affectionate. What was that family home like before the 1979 overthrow of the Shah and the Iranian Revolution? Well, like, like any other household, it was full of fun, full of family gatherings, full of joy, lots of food. When you're saying lots? Lots. <laughs> like groaning table, that kind of thing? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, every Thursday night, which is the equivalent of Friday night in, in the Georgian calendar, we would have guests we would have at least 20, 30 people coming to our house and mum would be cooking abundance of food for hours and hours and hours in the kitchen. And she really took joy in being a hostess and she loved, she loved her cooking, she loved her guests. And, yeah, it was really, really beautiful. You were born in 1970, which would have made you nine when the Shah was overthrown and the yep. Iranian Revolution happened and the theocratic government of Ayatollah Khomeini came into power. Did you have an understanding of what was going on? What memories do you have in your head of that time, Peruz? Well, it, it started a couple of years before that. So it started with civil unrest, with um, demonstrations on the streets, hearing um, shotguns fired, seeing blood, seeing student demonstrations. So it, it, wasn't, it didn't happen overnight. And you could see that the mood was changing. You know, even the family gatherings kind of started losing its, its flavor. And, and there were a lot of political discussions, whereas before it was, you know, fun and, and joke and talking about old stories and, and relatives and all of that. But, yeah, it started, started changing. And then when violence broke out, were you allowed outside? Could you see what was going on? We were allowed to go outside, but it was dangerous to be outside because you, you could be anywhere at any time and, you know, a bomb would go off or, you know... Because um, at that time, Shah hadn't left, just left uh, the country. So there was a lot of military presence on the streets. And then one day, we, we actually did go out and then we noticed that people were giving flowers to soldiers, the, the army. And then we, we found out that the Shah had, had left had left Iran, so they kind of united uh, with, with the military forces. 
The late Mark Colvin, the ABC broadcaster, reported from Tehran during, in the aftermath of the revolution where a whole lot of violence was reporting. And he talked about it on my program with me. I think Mark was traumatised by his experience in Tehran. I can't imagine what that would have been like for you as a little boy, Biruz. Mm. The trauma never leaves you. The scars are still there. And every time I talk about it, it's, it's as vivid as, as it was back then. You know, I still remember for, for a good couple of years at, from the, you know, at the beginning of the Islamic Revolution, well, with the new regime taking hold, uh, coming home from school, I would see newspapers. The front page would be covered with pictures of dead bodies that the, the government, that the regime had executed. And, and that was really awful to see, you know, that the newspapers were just there and then all these naked bodies with bullets in their, in their chest. I, st- I, can see, I can still see those images in my head when I think about it. Were you aware of the arrests, disappearances, summary executions? How can you not be? Mm. You know, in, in our immediate circle, several people were, um, were arrested and, and they were executed. And, um, you know, we would be sitting having lunch or afternoon tea and the phone would go off and, and you know, there would be yet again another news and somebody else. So it was, it was inevitable. It wasn't something that you would think, oh, it's just somebody else somewhere. Every, every household had a story, several stories, about those atrocities. That was going on under the Shah to some degree too, wasn't it? The Shah had a secret police. People were being disappeared as well. Was there really, was, it, was there any difference? Was this just part of the ongoing process, just different regime? Probably. Look, I can't really comment much about what was happening before the revolution, because obviously I was very little, and, and all I remember from, from those times is, is what was talked about in our home, and it was the good times. It was the, the prosperity of the country and, and the success of the country at the local level, but also at the global level. We had a, we had a very positive re- reputation all around the world. As I was saying earlier, we could travel to any country, European country, to United States on Iranian passport without a visa. Now, we look at it completely differently, thanks to the regime. Your family had been cosmopolitan, multilingual, intellectual, connected to traditions that precede Islam by thousands of years. Was the family under some suspicion by the regime? No, not really, because like a lot of other people, we withdrew. From, from the society, that continued teaching. He, you know, he had to support the family. Mum withdrew. Um, she, she loved her job, and, and she, was, uh, she taught literature in, in high school. And um, she said, I'm not, I'm not wearing a scarf. I'm not being told what to teach in school. So she retired. She was in her early 40s. She gave up teaching. So she, she became very withdrawn, became quite depressed. And she turned to poetry, and she, she started writing poetry. So my friend Marek Turman, who's a writer in Prague, said that under Soviet communism, he and a lot of other young people practised what he called internal emigration. You sort of mm. migrate inside yourself mm. because you can't really have a proper public persona. Is that what you're talking about here? Yes, indeed. And, and what saddens me is that those... You know, the, the, she has volumes and volumes of really, really powerful poetry collection that are just sitting in a suitcase because obviously it would have been quite dangerous for her to publish those. And now they're just sitting in, inside a cupboard. How different was it when you went back to school after the revolution? Yes, yeah, so the schools um, shut down when all of that erupted, and it was kind of late in the year, it was around February. So in, in, in Persian calendar, we, school goes until mid-March, and then we, we break for Nowruz, which is Persian New Year, 21st of March. There's a two-week break, and then school resumes. So schools were shut down around, I think it was December or, or, or thereabouts. And um, we had no idea what was going to happen. We had no idea that if we ever going to go back to school. So mom and dad being teachers, <laughs> school did not stop for me, so they would give me homework to do. And so for me, it was just like a <laughs> homeschooling. <laughs> I, could, I could not get away. 
And then eventually we returned in the new year. I think it was a good four or five month gap. And um, the first thing that was quite astonishing was that they had separated boys and girls because I was only in primary school and it was co-ed. And half of the school was gone. So, oh, where are my friends? So, 79, there's the revolution, the overthrow of the Shah. And the following year, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi army invaded Iran in southwest Iran. And that's the beginning of this nightmarishly long war, the Iran-Iraq war. How did you become aware that that war had started? Because you were still a kid of 10 at the time, Peruz. I was. So I was doing my homework and dad uh, stormed in and said, turn the radio on. Iraq has bombed the western border and they have shut down the airports. And then we all just stood in, in, the, in the land room. We, had, we were speechless. So we turned the radio on and it was all over the news. And then there was this sudden influx of, because it was really intense, not just southwest, all around, along the border from north to south, along the western border, cities were being bombed heavily. And then they had an influx of refugees from those towns. That was the first time I came to know the word refugee because they were referred to as refugees. So all these families, you know, fled their, their towns and they came to Tehran. And I never forget, you know, some people who were a bit snobbish and say, oh, look at all these refugees and then, you know, all the riffraffs and all the clothing everywhere on the balcony and, and whatnot. They, they were looked um, down on. So you go into a wartime economy and there's rationing. What were the rations like? Oh, so each household were given um, a little booklet of, of ration coupons, uh, depending on number of people in the household. And we were entitled to, to buy things according to those coupons. I, I can't remember the exact details, but some things are, are quite vivid in my mind. Like it would be like a bag of rice, maybe once a month, a little tin of oil, maybe once every couple of months. And even that, that was quite scarce. Like, just because you had a coupon did not mean that you would actually get anything. You would queue up, and the shops had quickly figured out that they could earn a lot more money if they hide the stock and then sell it in the black market. So five people would buy tins of oil, and then it would run out. So then people had to buy in the black market for twice, three, four, five times the price. And how was your dad at buying things on the black market? Well, dad was a very soft, quiet, uh, you know, type of person. So at first he, first in terms of like he would say, as a matter of principle, I'm not paying these bastards black money. And soon he figured that we have to eat. So he had no choice but to, but to pay. He, he, he just had to. He, he had to, you know, queue up and wait for the queue to, um, you know, for, for the shopkeeper to bring the grill down and then say, OK, how much? That just became a norm for everyone. Or we would, we would um, do a bit of a bartering with others. Uh, so if somebody had managed to get a box of washing powder and they had an overstock, they would trade for a tin of oil. And the same with sanitary products. Families who didn't have girls would swap for, for whatever with families who had girls. Did Tehran itself come into missile attack or aerial attack? It did, it did. So kind of halfway through, so the, the whole war, the whole period was about eight years. So two or three years into the war, uh, they, they started doing air raids first. And then, you know, they figured that with the anti-aircraft missiles, it was quite dangerous for Iraqi planes to come all the way from Baghdad, or from, from air bases in Iraq to, to Tehran, which is quite central. And they started shooting missiles, long-range missiles. What kind of warning would you get if a missile was on the way? You would get no warning. It would just come. Was there no air raid siren, no siren or something? Well, you can't predict when they, when they land. So they just, they, they fly so fast... They can't really detect them. So you, we would be outside and people who had heard them would say that it sounds like a big swarm of bees, you know, flying above you. And, and then you, you could hear it whistling and it would come. And they were 10 meters long. Like you, they would just suddenly land and, and destroy a whole block of homes, properties. Did you see such things? Yes. Was there anywhere you could go for shelter? There was no shelter. 
We had no shelter. When we were doing our year 12 exams, that was the, the height of, of the missile attacks. And if one or two had, had landed in the vicinity, you know, they would say, you know, let's go to shelter. Shelter was the car park of the school. That was our shelter. And we, we would go there. <laughs> but we would use that to our advantage. We would ask each other, you know, what's the answer to that question on the <laughs> exam paper? <laughs> Because, you know, some of us struggled with some of the questions. It was, how quickly, how, what was that question? So that, that was our focus, just to pass the exams. <laughs> Podcast. Broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Tell me about the day your father got a call from his best friend about his daughter. Yes, yeah, so dad received a phone call from one of his best friends that he, he grew up with and uh, he said Sarah is in, is in hospital and we knew that their street well, that area was, was bombed earlier that day. So what had happened was a bomb had landed across the road from where they lived, and she was supposed to go to this house for a little girl's birthday party. But bomb landed, and 35 little girls were all killed in that bomb attack. And she saw, she stood behind the window, and she watched ambulance, you know, pulling all of these little bodies out of the rubble. And she collapsed. So they took Sarah to, to the hospital. She was paralyzed because of the shock that she endured. And, um, yeah, she didn't survive. Did your parents, nonetheless, try and make you feel safe at this time? Did they do what they could to make you feel safe? And could it, could it work? Look, mom and dad were both very, very loving. And so they gave me what they could. And being teachers, their primary focus was education. Mm-hmm. So that was, I guess, you know, their way of um, diverting me from the horrors that, that were unfolding. Also, that they really wanted me to, to succeed. Bomb or no bomb, I had to, I had to do really well in, in high school um, to be able to get into university studies. So when I was struggling in year 12 with, with everything that was going on, mom would sit me down and say, listen, this is a very, very crucial time of the, your, your life. You need to get really, really good marks and you need to go to university. So it was almost like they were in denial, maybe. Or distracting know. you. Or distracting me or both. <laughs> I don't know. That, that, yes. that, that's not a bad tactic, yes. though, under the circumstances, yes. is it? Like, look over here. That's your future over yes, there. Yes, that's right. Don't, don't worry about... Don't yeah. worry about what that noise is yes. in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Western movies and music was mostly banned, I understand, in Iran. Completely. Completely banned, okay. Yes. But were you still able to get pirate copies of Western movies? Yes. So it was in, you know, later on uh, when I was year 12 and onwards... We bought a VCR, for those of you who are vintage like me, you know what, what a VCR is, the younger generation, I think what the heck yes, is VCR. Yes, boys and girls, there was a thing called a VCR, <laughs> yes. and yes. you had to have movies on a giant cassette, and you, yeah, that's you right, put like them this in a side. <laughs> Marvellous technology, oh, we loved it at the time, didn't and we? And it would yes. chew up half of the tape. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, yeah, so occasionally people would, would go overseas and they would smuggle a copy and then they would make copies of copies of copies of copies. So by the time it would reach your hand, it was like the 60th copy. And the quality drops every time you make a copy. <laughs> so it was kind of barely visible. You button and it will flicker for, for people who are familiar with the VHS era. It will flicker. And nevertheless, we would like be switched on and we would be glued <laughs> to, the, to the TV to and watch. Are we talking like are you watching art house movies or is it Top Gun and stuff like that? No, art house movies. That's, that's what got me into photography. So I was fascinated with Hitchcock and 
Ingmar Bergman and Fellini, and so that was like to talk of. I mean, there were other like Ghostbusters and all of those, <laughs> Footloose and Flashdance, and obviously everyone wanted to do, you know, um, so you breakdance. You go from Cries and Whispers to yeah. Footloose. Footloose, which I was hopeless at, but you know, my friends were amazing, like mimicking Michael Jackson and all of those amazing dance moves. But we're laughing, but there's something really beautiful about it. It's like to watch a kind of an eighth generation grainy version of an Ingmar Bergman movie and to still love it. Mm. It wasn't until I came to Australia that I grabbed one of those movies and I saw, oh, this is what actually it looks like. <laughs> what it really looks I like. I didn't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this led you to want to become a cinematographer. Yes. And then into photography mm. instead. Why the shift there, Bruce? So entry to cinematography course was really, really uh, quite a process. So I, I sat for the entry exams and I got an interview. And in fact, this setup <laughs> reminds me of that interview. So I was on the stage on my own and the interview panel we were down there. And they asked me a whole lot of questions. They asked me to recite a poem I forgot. And they asked me to you know, talk about a, you know, a movie that I would make and I completely went blank. Basically, I stuffed it up. And no surprise, I didn't get uh, into that course. But the entry grade that I had scored at the entry exam qualified me to get into photography. And I was really, really peeved off about the fact that I didn't get into cinematography. And I said, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. It's like second best kind of thing. And uh, so my uncle sat me down and he said, this is really, really good. And it could be a pathway. So don't, don't snob it. Just go for it. And he was uh, right. He was right. Yeah. Yes. And, but I didn't go into cinematography as a result. <laughs> so Tishtar and his friends in your book, they, they're into Richard Avedon photos and Man Ray. Yeah. Could you still get those kind of books in Tehran when you were a teenager? Well, not. The bookshops were not allowed to stock any. Um, university had a very, very small collection and the books were vandalised. So half of the book, if, they, if images were not of nature or products, they were completely wrecked. So they would either have been completely ripped out of the book or um, bits that body parts, when I say body parts, I mean like bare shoulders or legs were shown, they would have blacked it out with black texture. Uh, so that was our textbooks. Did you ever want that job, like to <laughs> scribble out the, the bare shoulders with blank texture? Yes. Probably not, no. Yeah. Were, you able to, um, were you able to photograph people in the street? Was that possible just to snap people? It was possible, but you would get into, into trouble. The number of times that I was pulled up and I had to surrender my, my film again, you know, for, for people of my vintage, you know, there was film camera those days. So I had to open the, the back of my camera and literally rip out the film completely out of its canister. So who, who are you showing this to? So, so to the revolutionary guards who would petro patrol the streets. They would suddenly spot you because they would, they would roam around. They still do, actually, in the four-wheel drives, white four-wheel drives. Suddenly you would see this, this car pulling down and think, crap, they're here. And they would pull you up and say, well, you know, what are you doing? And they would just make up excuses, any, any, any excuse to, to reprimand you. So these are the bullies and snitches of society. Yeah. They're able to join this kind of an organisation like a secret police yeah. and knock people around as they, as they do. And, and what would they say to you? Would they, try and, would they try and make you ashamed of what you were doing? Yeah. So they would first, it was, they are quite imposing. You know, there would be like four big blokes would get out of the four-wheel four -wheel drives and then they would sort of, you know, surround you. And they would, you know, say, what are you doing? So I'm taking photographs. What for? I'm a photographer. Says who? So it's kind of very intimidating, very in interrogatory, their language, their, their, their body language. And then they, they would want to know, and then they would make up things out of the sky, like they would say, there's a girls' high school in the vicinity or you're not, you're not supposed to be here. There were no, no girls' high school around or there would be no, you know, specific buildings that sometimes, I mean, even here we know that there are certain areas that you, you can't take photographs. But it, was, it could be anywhere, anytime that they would just stop you and question you. In your book you have the head of the university, this spurious academic, 
who's actually a member of the Revolutionary Guard, telling off Tishtar, saying, all these thousands and thousands of soldiers didn't die in the, in the war just so you can go and look at books with the photographs of semi-naked women. Was that put to you? Was that like saying you, you're doing a shameful thing that desecrates the memory of our glorious dead? Yes, that was a true incident. And what was really unfair about that incident was that it wasn't a book on, you know, it wasn't a book of portraits. It was, it was a book purely of, of gadgets, photographic gadgets. And it was, it was a technical book. It had no, there were no images of people in that book. Well, because it was a Western book and I was in the position of that, I had to be pulled into the office and answer some questions. I was going to ask you what made you want to migrate, but I think you've already answered that question here. When did you get the idea you might want to leave Iran? You know, it was like a pressure cooker. You know, you, you put up and you put up and you put up and you put up and then suddenly, you know, the, the thing pops. You feel like, that. No, I can't do this. So when I finished university, I started looking for work and I did some commercial photography and a few weddings. And I thought, nah, definitely not going to do weddings. <laughs> not my cup of tea. And, um, and I thought, well, there's no future for, for an artist. There's absolutely no future in this country. And I had reached my threshold that, no, I really cannot do this anymore. China in the 1990s and Iran in the 80s and 90s, despite the regimes, produced some of the most compelling cinema of that time and culture despite the regime or finding ways to work around it or in the face of that regime. What do you think about all that, Peruz? Well, in my experience, personally, I, I completely agree with, with that observation. And in my experience, pain and hurt uh, can manifest itself in, in, throughout the creative process. So, you know, where I've, I've seen mum write really, really beautiful, powerful, really painful pieces of poetry, but it comes, stems from that place of hurt and uh, anguish. And then I think the same applies to a lot of other form, forms of art. Persian music is quite sad. If you listen to the, to the notes deeply, it stems from thousands and thousands of years of pain and invasions and loss of culture and loss of country and loss of loved ones. Despite everything, I must give voice to this. Despite everything, I will insist on beauty and truth and pain and art, mm -hmm. like your mother's poetry. Yeah. So why Australia? What brings you to this part of the world? So there was an immigration lawyer who had an office across the road from where we lived. And on my way to university, I would always see his sign, you know, migration to Australia and Canada, migration to Australia and Canada. And then on that day, when I completely reached my boiling point and the pressure cooker exploded, I happened to be walking past his office and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go and ask, you know, what's possible. And to my astonishment, it sounded relatively easy and I qualified for, for migration points, whereas other, other places were impossible. Like my, my sister lives in the United States and she said, there's just no way none you can come to America. My uncle lived in London and then he said, you could come for a few months, but I don't know. I don't know how you can stay in London. There, are, there were no visa options. And Austria, where my brother lives, was not an option for very similar reasons. So I guess that the scheme at the time that was available through Australia and Canada were more feasible. So you arrive in Australia, you get off at the airport in Sydney, and you're in a place well, once you get past Kingsford Smith Airport, where the air's got eucalyptus in it and the sky is different, the clouds are a million miles above your head, and the bird song is completely different. Were you confronted by that? Did you really feel like you were in a strange place? I felt like I had been on a very, very high spin in a washing machine and I had been thrown out <laughs> <laughs> the other end because Tehran is busy, 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 busy. It has a population of 25 million people. Cars everywhere, pollution, noise, people everywhere. So to come out of that to this was a huge shock. And my ears were ringing. It's like, where is noise? I want to hear noise. Like, it's just like it was just silence was deafening almost. It wasn't a huge a culture shock because we had traveled a fair bit 
you know, to different places. But the setting, the environment was was quite astonishing. Yeah, the street life it would have been a lot quieter. Well, especially Wollongong. You, and you went to Wollongong. <laughs> For those who have ever had the pleasure of <laughs> travelling through Wollongong. Go to the gong, mate. Yeah. To the gong, yeah, the, the gong. So you didn't become a surfy and uh, take yeah, up the all, life down all there? All of that, that's right. So, yeah. so it was, yes. Uh, so it was the, yet again like on weekends, everywhere would be quiet and closed at like five o'clock shops would close. I said, what is this? Like, why are the shops closed? Whereas yeah. Tehran, like shops are open till midnight. There's people everywhere, they never go home. So, so once settled in Australia, you then shifted from photography to law. You did a law degree. What made you want to do a law degree, Peruz? Look, in a, in a nutshell, I guess, um, having seen violations of human rights in Iran always made me wonder you know, how, how is it that some systems can get away with it? How does the legal system work elsewhere? Because I've never tasted democracy, democratic society in my lifetime. And I was curious. But also growing up, I grew up in a household where social justice was always discussed. My, my grandfather was, I never met him, but from what I hear, he was a social justice advocate. He always advocated for prisoners who had no money and they had no one to, to def defend them. He too would, would go to prison and he would lend his clothes and come back home with their, you know, ripped um, clothing. And mom was a very strong-minded feminist, so she always talked about that. So I, I always had those teachings, I guess. And, and then, you know, seeing what I saw, I thought, you know, I was curious and I wanted to, to see if I can turn that f passion into, into something useful. So this led you to become a refugee advocate. Is that the best way to put it? Yes and no. So, so when I was in my final year of law school, and mind you, I was probably the only one in my entire class who actually had an interest in human rights. Everyone else wanted to go into corporate law, which is fine, you know, we, we need all sorts of lawyers. No, it's not fine, actually, no. It's not fine. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, you, know, you know, if all the corporate lawyers in the world disappeared, would we really notice? Would, would, it, would it be like The Simpsons where everyone's holding hands and singing, it's a small world after all, and uh, I beg to differ with you on that point, Yes, sir. that's okay. ABC yeah. Corporation would need a corporate lawyer. Right. We'd get all sorts of stuff to wear then, wouldn't yes. we? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so I started volunteering at refugee and uh, refugee advice and casebook service in Redfern. So I would catch the train all the way from the Gang and go to Sydney. And, and that really ignited that passion in, in working with refugees and asylum seekers. And then it just, that thread continued throughout, throughout my practice. Having had friends who've lived under a police state, it's sort of made me very aware over time and more recently that Australians really don't have any idea. We're very blessed. We don't have any idea of what it's like to live in a state that constantly surveils you, where you fear arrest, where an inadvertent remark at a party might lead to you being brought in for interrogation, to you being made an informant, to having trust between friends brought, broken down. Do you get that sense? Australians are blessed with not being aware of what that kind of life is like. I think it's an absolute privilege not to have ever, ever uh, experienced something like that. But I think it, it's something that unless you experience, you just, you know, people, I can, I can sit here all night and talk. But you just don't know. Unless you experience something, how can you know? How can you even imagine what it's like to, you know, to grow up under, under you know, to, to live under such atrocities? And, and the, the thing is, what often is, is missed is that it's not necessarily people who are involved in politics who get into trouble and, and have a hellish existence in, in that country. It's, it's your everyday people who, who can't even go about their normal lives. And that's really, really painful. Do you still live with that sense of that feeling like, like something could happen now if I'm not careful? Do you Absolutely, all the time. All the time. I still, when I see those white four-wheel drives, and unfortunately everyone now drives a four-wheel drive, so it's like this recurrent dream. Um, white four-wheel drives still remind me of those days. Yep. And a few years ago, I had to go back. Well, I was going back to Iran, so I renewed my passport and I would receive emails from the embassy 
you know, updates or whatever, Iran embassy. And every now and then, for some reason, they just send newsletters to all the Iranian residents in Australia. And, and, and my heart sinks every time I see Islamic Republic of Iran embassy. I think, oh, what do they want from me? Even, even here, I don't feel quite at peace. You left home from Tehran in the 1990s to make your way here. How do you make sense of that experience now and being a migrant in Australia? Look, um, we were having this conversation a few weeks ago and somebody said, you know, you fled Iran. I said, I need to clarify, I didn't flee, but in so many ways I did. It's, it's one of those things that's very, very dif- difficult to explain in that I didn't flee in the sense that a lot of people run for their lives because they're at immediate risk. So when you, you fail, you have no choice but to leave. It's such a painful decision to make. It is still a decision. You're still making an informed decision, knowing that you're leaving everything behind. But knowing that you have no choice but to leave that behind is, is something that the older I become, the more painful it becomes to think about. I was talking to the photographer Andrew Quilty about the last days of Afghanistan before the fall of Kabul to mm. the Taliban, and he talked about the desperate struggle that people had to get on one of those last mm. planes and, and some people he knew, and they, they made their way. They got on board one of yep. those last planes yep. and got on board with their family, and this, it was a really happy story. But as soon as they got on the plane, everyone bawled their eyes out to be leaving at the same time. That's that dilemma, isn't it? There's a kind of a, a tragic paradox in that. It is, it is. And is that how you feel? Yeah, well, we is often, it? you know, because um, dad passed away last year, mum is, is really frail, and whenever I think about, you know, how frail and how lonely she is, you know, uh, people say, but, but you would have known, you know, when you left, you would have known that your parents would get to old age, and what were you thinking? And then, like, how, how can you put that into words? How can you explain what it was like to force you to leave? And then, of course, then the trade-off is that your 89-year-old frail mum is 18,000 miles away and um, has no idea whether if you ever go back. There's a lovely line in your novel where you write, the longer you live in your new country, the more the thread stretches until finally it breaks. Yes, yeah. And um, that moment of realizing that that has that thread has actually snapped came, you know, I came to that realization when I went back after many many years of not going back. I went there and I felt like, wow, I'm an absolute foreigner now. Even the lingo, the street lingo, had changed, and I, I couldn't understand what people were talking about. I had to get my sister to translate the, the street lingo. And then when I came back, it hit me again. I thought, wow, I am still very much a foreigner. Even after like 25, nearly 30 years in mm. Australia? Mm. You will always feel that way then, do you think? I think so. I think so. I remember talking to a writer, an Australian writer, who told me, he died a few years ago, he said that he, he grew up in a little country town and moved to Sydney, but towards the end of his life, he regretted ever leaving that town. He said, I wish I'd stayed there amongst the people I grew up with and loved for the rest of my life. But it seems to me sometimes the point of being, point of life is to become hybridised, to go into new places, take on aspects of that place and have that make a new self. You are this other person here that is the sum total of all this experience, including your decades in Australia now. Do you not see yourself that way as that hybrid person now? I'm definitely a hybrid person. I definitely have adopted a lot of new ways of being and new ways of doing and thinking even. Even, even the fact that I wrote the book in English is, is, you know, is a sign that I have transformed to a new person. And you're making pheasant with tofu, not and chicken. And I'm making, well, that's right, much to the horror of my mind. You see, we've come full circle now, haven't we? <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, but I think there's just something very, very deep that connects me to ancient, ancient history. And that, that's just something that I don't think, regardless of how many more places I live, that's not going to vanish. Sometimes migrants talk about having the old country in their mind forever, and that has to be enough for them. Maybe that's how you feel about the way you live now? Yes, yes, that would be correct. 
It's been lovely speaking with you. Bruce Jafari. At that point, Bruce brought out a book of Persian recipes. So, yes, I will be trying to make chicken pheasant sometime in the very near future. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. A great big thank you to Michaela Maguire, to Jean Smith and Sonia Nair at the Melbourne Writers' Festival for staging this splendid event at the State Library of Victoria and to Con Karamansis and to Brendan O'Neill at ABC Melbourne for the sound recording. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Naz. Hi, Naz. Uh, Last month I spent $65 on subscription services and I only watched one show. My own. And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Fair enough. Been there. Hi, I'm Nazim Hussain, and in 2021, I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help, quick, and by the sounds of it, you do too. So this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New Pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.